Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. To the big story of the day, were we really surprised that Kiri Allen's political life imploded in a drunk driving incident in Wellington last night? I live in central Otago and even away in the boondocks I hear about Kiri Allen's after-hours antics, about her drinking and about her tortured love life. This has been going on for, well, at least 18 months. In fact, I first heard about her nighttime activities the summer before last, about the same time I heard about Chris Hipkins' marriage breaking up. So she has led a troublesome personal life for some time. The relationship with Marnie Dunlop was fractious back then, before becoming all official again with the engagement and her very vocal and frankly out-of-order support for the broadcaster at the Radio New Zealand function that Ellen had to apologise for. But the relationship broke up again And that has started her on a downward spiral, which ended on Evans Bay Parade last night. She appears unable to contain herself in office interactions and obviously doesn't know how to stop drinking to excess when she knows she has to drive. And then on top of that, she's charged with resisting arrest as the Minister of Justice. Well, I'm sure now that Labour will have to find a new candidate for East Coast and then reassign her portfolios around an ever-diminishing number of cabinet ministers. But doesn't Chris Hipkins deserve to have a hot spotlight shone on him over all this? Ellen was on stress leave. She was back for precisely one week before it literally crashed, although it didn't burn, thankfully. So the role of cabinet dishonour is getting longer. Nash, Wood, and now Kerry Allen are fired. Mecca Fightery walks. And Jan Tanetti is in front of the Privileges Committee and all this in just six months since Chris Hipkins became Prime Minister. Surely, surely those polls are wrong. How can a party and a government in as much disarray as this still command 30% support? I think October the 14th will tell us that they don't. New Zealand First held its annual conference over the weekend, and even though the mainstream media tended to concentrate on the party's tax policy, to me the real story was that Casey Costello is putting her name up as a candidate for the party. Now, I've met Casey a few times and, of course, interviewed her quite recently on this show. She is proud of her mixed Māori and European ancestry, like hundreds of thousands of other New Zealanders. And she just does not see the need to divide the country on racial lines, as is the case with this government. She has been a fearless proponent for equality for all New Zealanders, equality of opportunity, that is. Her political thinking is very much aligned with both Winston Peters and Shane Jones. And I suspect when New Zealand First announced their party list, Casey Costello will have a very high placing. Now, New Zealand First are hovering around 3 or 4% in most polls at the moment, but I feel there is significant momentum for them, especially 
among the so-called freedom movement. Now, these are the thousands of New Zealanders who felt dreadfully let down by all current sitting political parties at the protest at Parliament last year. Winston was there, not in Parliament, of course, but he walked among the protesters, and for that he gained considerable traction. He's now beginning to realise that there is a huge group of people, maybe, maybe as many as 200,000 voters, who did not want to be vaccinated, objected strongly to mandates, and are looking for a home this election. There are even moves afoot to convince some of the other smaller parties to stand aside in order to let Winston and New Zealand First take this so-called freedom vote. If Winston and Shane Jones can harness that group, and these potential voters can overcome his previous treachery, like going with Labour in 2017, then a New Zealand First return to Parliament is very, very likely. And if you don't believe that number of 200,000, just think of the number of people who have listened to this radio station since it started in March and the number who are on the Voices for Freedom mailing list. The constituency is large. Based on the 2020 election count, it's about... 8% of the electorates, and it is waiting for a political leader. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. On the 24th of May this year, the Deputy Director General of the Department of Conservation, Mike Tully, emailed other members of the senior leadership team at uh, the department and other line managers at DOC. This was soon after the budget, where DOC did not get a significant increase in funding and therefore is facing a multi-million dollar budget shortfall. Mr Tully is pretty frank in the email he sent to his colleagues. He wrote, quote, To be transparent, the initial view shows that we do not have sufficient funding to cover our basic running costs. Unquote. So, essentially, DOC can't get enough money to operate. They also have $300 million worth of deferred maintenance that needs doing. But despite this dire financial situation, the department is now prepared to pay staff a bonus of up to $3,500 a person if they become proficient in Māori language skills. Yet the skills that DOC staff might pick up through becoming proficient in Tereo are completely unrelated to their job. In other words, they can do their job just fine without learning Māori language. Their HR boss, these days they call them the chief people officer, so the chief people officer says, quote, Doc have no positions that require Tereo Māori for the practical purpose of communicating in the course of work, unquote. So why? Why, when you are in deep financial shtuk, do you go and spend money like this? Even worse, there is no budget for it, and requests for information about how much it might cost will only be considered under the Official Information Act, says Doc. It is, to say, the kindest thing, absolutely irresponsible spending on the part of the Department of Conservation. They have around 2,500 staff. If everybody reached the top achievement level, which admittedly is unlikely, uh, this initiative would cost DOC about $8.5 million, which is actually a drop in the bucket because DOC have a $600 million annual budget. But that's not the point. 
That's eight and a half million, which could go some way towards all that maintenance and repairs at dock facilities that are needed all over the country. This is unnecessary, wasteful spending being pushed by the ideologues who just don't care about spending other people's money. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. To some of your feedback now, which has come into inbox at realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057 or through our Facebook page, uh, this one comes from somebody whose name is not immediately obvious to me, but it reads, Dear Peter, I grew up in Switzerland. I was born in 1960. I have learned that for men to sit for number one helps relax better and empty out the bladder properly, which is helpful to avoid prostate problems. That has been quite common knowledge since over 30 years over there, I think. Well, thank you for that. I was completely and utterly unaware of this. This, of course, is in response to uh, the survey, which has come out showing that Men in Germany in particular, 40% of them sit down to pee. And in Australia, 25% of them sit down to pee. Uh, New Zealand not surveyed. Uh, It's something that I was unaware that men did. But there you go. Thank you to uh, my correspondent who grew up in Switzerland. Uh, Now, in response via Facebook to my recent pondering about Victoria pulling the plug on hosting the 2026 Commonwealth Games... I said, uh, has Dictator Dan done us all a favour? Could this spell the end for the increasingly woke, irrelevant, second-rate sports festival? Uh, A couple of comments about this. Stephanie Broom writes, how about looking at it from the athlete's perspective? From what I've heard, they're pretty upset about it. It's an event for the not-quite-Olympians and a step to the Olympics. Sure, we have a bunch of world champion competitions for this, that and the other thing, and half of them we barely hear a word about. So it is big for the athletes, even if the Commonwealth as a concept has had its day. And Christopher Fido writes, It's a great event for athletes set midway between the Olympics, uh, so their hard work and training does not get wasted. Yes, I have some sympathy for that attitude, but frankly, you can you cannot spend billions and billions of dollars, as Dan Andrews has quite rightly said, for something that lasts for 12 days. Now, look, the Victorian model of going to the regions was flawed from the start because Melbourne, as we know, has such great sports facilities. So going into the countryside or to the provincial cities, the regional cities in Victoria, was always a political move first and foremost. So frankly, from that perspective, it's not surprising that it's just become way, way too expensive. But I just think the Commonwealth Games as an event have had their time, had their day. There are plenty of other events which will grow in prominence as time goes by. Just my thinking, uh, we will have more feedback for you later this afternoon here on Reality Check Radio. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Our text is 2057, and you can find us on Facebook. Julian Batchelor's stop co-governance meeting in Palmerston North has caused a bit of a kerfuffle. And those who can't stomach what he has to say without actually defining exactly what it is that they object to are quite upset about what happened to 
let's be honest, an irrational and disruptive protester inside the meeting there in the last few days. Now, I've never been to one of Batchelor's meetings, but I have heard him interviewed, and he is quite specific about the format of what happens at his meetings. Basically, he speaks, and then there is time for questions and discussion afterwards. It sounds civil and logical, and after all is the way that proper public discourse happens. Except that there are many on the left who can't cope with civility, or in fact don't know any proper manners. So a woman named Victoria came to a meeting in Palmerston North and with one of her films, uh, one of her friends rather filming her, held up a sign about free speech and hate speech, and then started blowing a whistle. It was rude, it was arrogant, it was disruptive behaviour at a place where people had gathered to hear a speaker. Hardly surprising those who wanted to hear Julian Batchelor's words took matters into their own hands and dragged this woman outside. As she resisted, well, she may have absorbed a bit of force. I mean, what else could be expected? If a person came to my house and started blowing a whistle around the dinner table, I would physically manhandle them out the door too. Now, from my reading of the situation, Julian Batchelor has no issues allowing anybody into his meetings as long as they are respectful and quiet until question time. It's like a council meeting or a court or an election campaign meeting. If you misbehave, though, expect consequences. Apparently, as she was being dragged out, someone yelled out, pull her pants down. Now, that is not good behaviour either. But it's what happens when tempers flare because somebody is, is disrupting a perfectly legal and supposedly peaceful assembly. When protesters revert to blowing a whistle, it really does show they have no argument at all. If they were so upset with Julian Batchelor's message, then challenge him on it after he had finished speaking. You see, that's what intelligent and rational people do. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. I see the Greens are still on the case about taxing the rich even more, but economist Jim Rose for the Taxpayers' Union has shot their plans to bits with a quite devastating takedown and rebuttal of their numbers. Now, while Chris Hipkins says there will be no wealth tax under his leadership, the fact that the Greens are so gung-ho and staunch about it and say they won't go into coalition with Labour unless a wealth tax is back on the agenda means that we have to take the prospect of such a tax quite seriously. The Greens claim that only 0.7% of New Zealanders will pay a wealth tax under their system. Yet, the Household Income Survey for 2021 found that 3.4% of couple households are worth more than $4 million, 6.5% of retired couples are worth more than $4 million, and 5.5% of single retirees are worth more than $2 million, which are the thresholds that the Greens have talked about, of course. These are the people the Greens are coming after, people who have lived honest, hard-working lives, and have built up a nest egg for their golden years. And now the Greens, as well, it must be said, as well as David Parker and Grant Robertson as senior Labour Party ministers, they want to take uh, between 1.5% or 2.5% of that net worth annually because apparently that is the fair thing to do. 
This is the nonsense, of course, of the left's argument. Who decides what fair is? But such a tax will hinder the economy in so many other ways too. Small businesses will be harder to start because the family home, which so often offers security for the lending to the business, will be taxed annually. The tax on farms will be horrendous. An average value dairy farm will be up for $45,000 a year. There is much evidence that many of the so-called rich are in fact working rich and 2.5% tax on their wealth, that is the value of their business, will reduce their ability to reinvest and grow the business. And then there is the most basic question of all. If this government collected another $12 billion through a wealth tax, as has been calculated, would they spend the money wisely? Considering that the tax take under Grant Robertson as Minister of Finance since 2018, 2017, has increased by something like 60% in six years, has the quality of the spending matched that? Are health and education services better as a result of more tax being collected? Of course not. This government does not need to collect any more tax. They should really concentrate on spending what they get now in a much more efficient way. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Time for more of your feedback now, which is coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057 or through our Facebook page. Uh, some comments on Facebook after uh, some thoughts I had regarding last week's terrible shooting in Auckland. Uh, two innocent people dead due to the leniency of our justice system was the basic theme of what I said. Uh, Bryn says, disgusting, what a joke. Uh, Pete Lincoln, with <laughs> quite a bit of sarcasm, says, no, that's incorrect. The licensed firearms owners are to blame and they will ultimately pay the price. Uh, yes, a bit of cynicism there, Pete, but I think uh, you might be right in terms of the way that the firearms register is going to be continued with. Uh, Richard says, having fewer inmates looks good for the politicians' statistics. They don't care about the people. We are all just numbers to them. It's time for a major change to the political landscape, I feel. Keep up the great work, Peter. Thank you for that, Richard. And Veronica writes, a judge once said... I am limited on passing a sentence appropriate to the crime. That says it all. Legislators are focusing on the passing of the wrong legislation, or is it deliberate? Legislators could very quickly change the rules about home detention, about how any sentence, any jail term of under two years automatically becoming eligible for Home D. That could be changed very quickly. The thing that really gets me is that white-collar criminals are the ones going to jail, going behind bars. But it's the, the young men, the violent offenders, who are staying out of jail. That doesn't make sense. They stay out of jail and they can go on to commit other crimes, as indeed Matu Reed did last week. Now, uh, I had another little rant about more government waste, the advertising campaign that Jan Tanetti and the Ministry of Education uh, had earlier this year about truancy, an advertising campaign which cost, what, a million dollars? Uh, no data was taken as to how effective it was. In fact, they were 
not even looking to have an effective campaign. They just wanted to raise awareness of truancy, <laughs> as if we were not already aware of truancy. Uh, so I called the people at the Ministry of Education fruitcakes. Uh, Rex writes, Ernest Adams fruitcakes or Copeland's? Very droll, Rex. Uh, John says, absolutely, Peter. Sadly, the opposition are no better. The whole system needs a complete overhaul. And Jeff Whitaker says, right on it, Peter. The Education Ministry have demolished classrooms in the Eskdale Primary School. This is just north of Napier, in the Eskdale Primary School, to allow for construction of a block of new classrooms. Suddenly, the Ministry have resolved to stop construction because of a lack of funding. No care for the future of the 320-plus students at the school. And then a couple of uh, quick and to the point comments about this uh, crazy advertising campaign. AD says, the gravy train continues. And Jane Mavitt says, bloody ridiculous. Thank you for your thoughts. Uh, and just one final piece of feedback, which is coming from Jan. I think he uh, pronounces his name, Jan Boyson of Tauranga. He writes, I'm sick and tired of hearing how overworked the police are, how they're having to be mental health advocates, parents, caregivers, and the whole gambit. Nearly every time I go out somewhere on our roads, though, I see someone collecting a speeding ticket. I seriously doubt they are behaving in an unsafe manner, just exceeding the ridiculous speed limits by five kilometres per hour. What used to be 80 is now 60, and what used to be 60 is now 50. Well, hello, were the roads so utterly dangerous when the limits were higher that they had to be reduced? BS. This is a revenue gathering exercise. And while the cops are telling sop stories about how overworked they are, they have plenty of resources to run around ticketing law abiding citizens for driving too fast. Amen to that, Jan. Could not agree more. I see it happening in my neighborhood all the time. Uh, a little bit more cops on the beat instead of traffic patrols might go some way towards reducing crime in this country. Just my thoughts. This is Reality Check Radio. Thank you for your feedback. Inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text is 2057, or you can find us on Facebook. Time is uh, running out for you to make submissions on the very innocently named Safer Online Services and Media Platforms Discussion Document. Now, in case you've missed what this is about, it is online censorship. The government plans to introduce new legislation putting up a regulator of online content. Now, we don't know who this regulator might be, what his or her background would be, but the role is to protect Kiwis, we're told, from content deemed unsafe or harmful. The regulator will approve codes of practice for platforms to comply with, requiring platforms to identify, moderate and take down non-compliant content. Now, as you can see, this is nothing more than censorship of the internet and the broadcast media at large. But this is censorship, censorship rather, on a grand scale. It is aimed fairly and squarely at organisations like Reality Check Radio, which has set up a website and, through the miracles of modern technology, gets together a diverse selection of programs from various hubs around the country. Now, you can make a submission on this discussion document on the Voices for Freedom website. 
which is voicesforfreedom.co.nz. If you scroll down uh, the latest newsletter from uh, Alia, or you may have had it already emailed to you, you will find a way to make a submission on this discussion document. Now, this is a hugely important issue, not just for RCR, but for New Zealand as a nation. We already have legislation which prevents objectionable material on the internet. This, though, is one step further. This is designed to stop ideas being promulgated which the government doesn't like. This is Orwellian in nature. If you can, you should make a submission about it. And this coming Wednesday, I'll be talking with uh, former judge David Harvey about the document and his writing on it. Needless to say, as a man of the law, he is very disturbed about this discussion document. So that's Wednesday afternoon here on RCR. If you want to make a submission on this safer online services and media platforms discussion document, go to voicesforfreedom.co.nz and you will see the links through to be able to make a submission. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. David Seymour and his mates, though, have hit a sweet spot with their new policy on roads. Now, where I live, roads are actually not that big a deal because A, there's not as many cars and trucks on the roads as up north, and B, it doesn't rain as much. So potholes and congested roads are really a North Island problem or maybe a north of the Rangatata River problem in the South Island. But it is an issue that voters can relate to because so many of them encounter it every day. The Nats scratched the surface the other day with their policy to fix potholes, but that is only a Band-Aid policy, surely. What we need are new roads, plenty of them, and they should have been built yesterday. Good, new, mainly straight roads reduce fuel consumption, reduce accidents, and make drivers feel much more relaxed. So what is not to like? And remember that even if the country goes all EV or all hydrogen cars in the years to come, which I doubt, the cars will still need good roads to travel on. That's why the idea of more private to public roads is a good idea put up by ACT. Get private enterprise to build it. They can then charge the users tolls for 30 years to recoup their investment and make a profit and then hand the road back to the Crown. The only rider is that there must be an alternative free route, possibly even with potholes as well as the toll road. But if the current model for funding new road construction isn't working, don't we need to look at the alternatives? And we have to make sure the contracts are absolutely watertight so that the risk is all with the private road builder. They pay for the overruns, they fill up the budget blowouts, and they pay if there's a failure in the construction in its early years, as in fact is happening with the landslides on the side of the new Puhoy to Walkworth motorway at the moment. The big issue standing in the way of moving this policy forward, no doubt, will be around consenting and whatever replaces the Resource Management Act. But surely it is time. A modern, sophisticated country has a modern, sophisticated roading network. And it's time New Zealand started building one. A few weeks ago, I went to hear Chris Luxon speak at a public meeting in Wanaka, near where I live. I gave my impressions of that the day after and suggested he was not overly impressive. Sure, he was fluent, he had a good grasp of the facts, 
but he's completely lacking the spark, the presence, the charisma, which says, hey, I'm your next prime minister. And he also showed that he can get rattled pretty easily. One of the questions after his speech came from a Wanaka local, Jerry Pibes, who is an Oxford history graduate, a psychotherapist, and a man utterly opposed to vaccination mandates. Jerry asked Christopher Luxon how he could expect the population of New Zealand to vote for him after his party refused to engage with the protesters at Parliament last year, many of whom lost their job because of the mandate or who had become quite ill after being vaccinated. Now, Chris Luxon tried to be nice, saying to Jerry, we can disagree without being disagreeable. But after a bit of heckling, he rather lost his composure and said the protest was a disparate group of people and that the protest rather lost its shape. And as the heckling continued, he said, well, that's my answer, and if you don't like my answer, that's fine. Feel free to vote for someone else. I mean, can you believe that? The leader of the National Party, in a neck-and-neck contest and race for the, the heart and soul of the country, says to a man at a meeting in the bluest of blue towns, in the bluest of blue electorates, that he can feel free to vote for someone else. And, you know, he said it in such a defensive manner that he appeared utterly unconvincing with his answer as to why he didn't even meet with the protesters. What has become very obvious 18 months on is that the politicians who refuse to talk to the protesters for whatever cowardly reason have not won back support from what could be a very significant freedom vote uh, this October. One that Winston Peters is all ready to swoop onto. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 20. Five, seven. So get in touch with us now. And that is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show here on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for your company today. I'm back on Wednesday where my guest will be the former District Court Judge David Harvey, a man who has written and thought a great deal about this discussion document on safer online services and media platforms. Is it necessary or is it censorship of a type not seen in this country before? You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.